Hey, it's uh, good to be with you this morning. Hey, to the dads in the room uh, and the guys who would like to become fathers one day, uh, again, a happy Father's Day to you. And just my encouragement to you is uh, everywhere you look around, you're gonna be told that masculinity is toxic, that it is not good for people. Um, And let me tell you, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Um, do not embrace that, do not walk in that. Be a man who is righteous and courageous and sacrificial and loving and kind and gentle. Live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live like Jesus, who was, in every sense of the word, a, a, a masculine man, and it was not toxic. And so I just wanna encourage you in that as you uh, love your families and love those around you, that you would embrace God's call on your life to be a man uh, who lives like Jesus, Okay. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Flip with me to Exodus 33, Exodus 33. While you find your way there, um, right now we find ourselves in the midst of a, a three-week sermon series entitled Until All Here. And, and so every year, yeah, amen, great series. Um, Pentecostal babies up in here. I love it. Um, <laughs> Uh, every year annually, we want to do a, a generosity sermon series as we close out our fiscal year in June and, and open it up in July. And, and last week, I, I shared with you the reason why we want to do this every single year is, is fourfold. Number one, God commands us to be generous. And so we want to be obedient to the commands of God. Where God says, go, we go. Where God says, don't, we don't. And where God says, be generous, we are generous. Number two, money, more than anything else in this world, shapes you. It shapes your view of this world. It shapes uh, how you function. It shapes the decisions you make. And, and what we want to do is, is pledge our allegiance to the truth of God's word and say, God, your word will shape me, not money. Number three, we want to talk about generosity every year because uh, one way we can determine just how healthy our church is is by how generous our church is. And we want a healthy church. And so if we're growing in generosity, that means we're growing in health. And then finally, uh, money is missionary ammunition. It is nothing less than that. If we want the gospel to go forward and we want churches to be planted until all here from every corner of this globe, then we must be a generous people who are gladly giving of our finances so that the gospel can advance. And so what we did last week is is we kind of didn't kind of, I went hard, okay? I went after the heart. Uh, I went after the heart, the theology uh, of money. And, and so in particular, I talked about the reasons why we worship money rather than God. And so one of the reasons is we, we worship money because money gives us security, whereas God is actually our security, money is not. Money will promise peace to us, that, that worry and anxiety and insecurity will, will, will kind of quell in the soul if we have money, whereas we have, if we have peace with God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we have peace in all things. We worship money when we forget the promises of God. Money will give us false promises of hope and satisfaction and ultimately let us down on those promises, whereas God is firm and fast on his promises. We will worship money when we develop a short view of life, that if our view is only for today rather than all of eternity, we are going to live for the sake of money, tracking money, doing everything we can to bow down to the idol of money, where where in God's word we see we have a long view of life that goes 
God has an inheritance for us that Jesus Christ is keeping by his power. And that inheritance is, is undefiled and it's imperishable and it's not going away because Jesus is holding it secure. And so money just becomes a thing. Money is just a thing that God has given to us to steward and provide for us. But in the end, we know that money will fade, whereas God and his gospel will not. And so what we wanna do this week is, is we wanna go now to the practical. So, so last week, if we targeted the heart, we wanna want now target the hands, so to speak. How can we grow practically in our generosity? And if you're new or new-ish to Story Church, our regular diet of preaching at Story Church is just to open up a book of the Bible and go verse by verse through it. Uh, July 2nd, we're gonna start in the Psalms again, and so looking forward to that. But, but we wanna take time every year to talk about a topic that is uh, dear to Jesus and his heart and also an idol in our culture. And we wanna expose that idol, smash that idol, and grow in the way of Jesus. So part two this week of Until All Here. The main point for this morning is this. Generosity is God's idea, and it begins today. Okay, that's it. It's real simple. Generosity is from God's mind and God's heart to us, and it should, and it could, and it ought to begin today. So three things we're gonna kind of work through uh, is obstacles to our generosity, then why, how, I wanna show you that generosity is God's idea and then I wanna give you some ways in which you can start today. All right, we're in this, we're ready, we're excited, we're happy, we've had coffee, we've had donuts. Man, thank you, Sean. First, obstacles to generosity. Obstacles to generosity. So if you remember back to last week, we were in Exodus chapter 32, and, and that's kind of the famous scene in the Bible when Moses is up communing on the mountain with God, and the people are, are down off the mountain in the camp, and they're growing antsy, and they're growing insecure, and, and they're getting a little bit worried about where's Moses, where's our leader, who's gonna guide us, who's gonna teach us, where, where is God uh, gonna take us, where is God at all in this? And as their insecurity grows, as their their worry grows. They go to Aaron, Moses's brother and, and right-hand man, and they say, hey, we, we want a God to worship. And, and so what Moses, or what Aaron does is has, collects everyone's gold earrings, melts them down, forms a golden calf, and they begin to say, this is God. This is the representation of God. We're gonna give peace offerings to it and sacrifice to it. And we're going to worship this as if this is Yahweh in our midst. And so God uh, righteously gets angry at the Israelites and tells Moses, hey, you need to go down off this mountain. You need to confront these people. And, and I'm, gonna just gonna, I'm gonna wipe them out and I'm gonna start over through you. And so what Moses does is he repents. And he says, God, forgive us. Forgive us for our sin. Don't wipe us out. You said you weren't gonna do that again to Noah. Would you have grace to us? And, and so God does have grace upon his people. But Exodus 32 ends like this. The Lord sent a plague upon the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And so they still have the consequences for their sin. They're not condemned for their sin, but they still have consequences for their sin. And then we move into Exodus 33 and we get a beautiful picture of God's redemption for the people for their sin. Look at Exodus 33 verses three and four. God is commanding Moses, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. 
God promises them this land, this, this land that we would call Israel, and it's this beautiful and glorious land flowing with milk and honey, and, and yet he says, you can go have that land, but I'm not going with you because of your sin and because of your worship of that golden calf. So that's why they're mourning at this disastrous word. And then you jump down to verse 12 through 16, and you read this. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses says back to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other nation on the face of the earth? Here's what Moses is essentially saying to God as, as, he's, as he's repenting and saying, forgive us. He is saying to God, you could give us the promised land, but if the promised one is not there, I don't want it. You can give us all the milk and all the honey in the world, but if you're not there, it's going to be empty. I would rather stay in this desert as a nomadic people getting manna from heaven and water from a rock. And if you're with us, that's so much better than this land that you've promised to us. God, do not leave us. Your presence with us is the greatest thing. Now, now here's what happens. We worship money. Okay, we grow antsy and insecure, just like the Israelites. And instead of building a golden calf, what we do is we bow down to and sacrifice at the altar of security via finances. And we are stiff-necked people. And and yes, God forgives us and he doesn't condemn us, but we begin to, to view money as security, as peace, as our hope, as our eternal promise. And it leads us into the place where the Israelites were as a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people distant from God. And so God says to us, fine, you can have all that. You can have all the money in the world. I'm just not gonna be with you. And we must cry out like the Israelites, God, if you're not with us, I don't want anything else. Jesus says it this way. Why gain the whole world but lose your soul? Why gain every bit of finances that this world has to offer but lose your soul? And yet we do not heed the warnings that we see in Exodus 33 and the warnings from King Jesus himself and we do everything we can to construct the golden calf. We just call it Wells Fargo or we call it the stock market or apparently cryptocurrency is bouncing back. Baloney, that ain't gonna happen. And then we create this bad relationship with money, man. We worship it, we bow down to it, we sacrifice to it, and we reject the promises of God. We pursue the promised land without the promised one. And we create these obstacles to generosity in our lives. And so let me, let me just call out uh, some things in our midst that I see and sense in our conversations, the reasons why we as a people, and I'm not talking broadly, I'm talking about in this room, why uh, we have obstacles to our generosity. First, our consumption outpaces our earning. 
Our consumption is outpacing our earning. Here's, here's the truth. You're always giving. You're always a generous person, okay? That's not the thing I'm trying to deal with here. It's just a matter of what you're generous to. Are you generous to the gospel and to the church or are you generous to another religion? There's all kinds of religions out there, right? The religion of entertainment, Okay, so I'm gonna get every streaming service I can. I'm gonna get every single thing I can to go bow down to the idol of entertainment. I'm gonna worship it. We, we bow down and we worship the religion of our bellies. I'm gonna be gluttonous, do everything I can to get more food and, and drink and experience in that way. I'm gonna be generous to that religion. We are generous to the religion of image management, Okay, so I'm gonna buy the best clothes. I'm gonna do all the plastic surgery. I'm gonna go to the, uh, the, the, the gymnasium. I'm gonna do all of those things because I gotta project an image. I'm gonna give to that religion. I'm gonna give to the religion of keeping up with others. Again, this is related to image management. So, so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy the bigger home that I truly can't afford and I'm gonna get the new car that I don't really actually need and I'm gonna go buy the next camper and do the next toy all to keep up with others around us. And you're giving, you're a generous person. It's just not to Jesus and his gospel. Your consumption is outpacing your earnings. Another reason why we, we have some obstacles to our giving is because we trust in the tangible rather than God. Here's what I mean by that. There is a material realm all around us and we can see it and sense it and feel it and track it and that's really appealing to us. That's why the Israelites built the golden calf in the first place. They couldn't see God, but they could see the golden calf. And so what we do is, is we trust in the physical and the tangible right in front of us. And what, what's most easily trackable, right? All of our Excel spreadsheets and the apps and all those cool things, it's our money. Which is why I challenged you last week, hey, go look at your last hundred expenses, your last hundred charges to your credit card, you will find the thing that your heart is drawn to if you just are willing to track that. And so we trust in those things all the while ignoring the fact that there is a spiritual realm around us where God is actively at work via his gospel and the power of his Holy Spirit working in our lives, but we neglect it because we can't see it. Another obstacle is we believe that generosity is only for wealthy people, that as soon as I get wealthy, I'm gonna start giving. That's not true. Generosity is a lifestyle. It does, has nothing to do with income level or status and has everything to do with your heart being captured and captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the truth is God says in his word this bluntly, if I can't trust you with little, I'm not gonna trust you with much. If you're not generous with little, there's no way you're gonna have much because he can't trust you with that. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament um, is the story of, of the two people who go into the temple to give. One of them is this man who's incredibly wealthy and he takes just a tiny portion of his income and he walks into the temple and they had these basins that, 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 that were made of uh, silver and he took his coins and he began to drop one after another inside the basin and it would clink and it would be loud and it just kept going and going and going and all of a sudden everyone in the temple looks and says, man, who's giving so much money to the, to the, to the temple? And they're all wowed by this guy, this rich guy. And then there's another woman just a widow with almost nothing. And she quietly and, and, and behind the scenes just gives one little 16th of a penny 
but it was everything she had. And Jesus says, that, that man, his heart is far from me. Her, I honor her in her generosity because our generosity is not measured by how much we give. Our generosity is measured by how much we keep for ourselves. And that woman gave everything while that man didn't truly have any instability via his giving. We believe generosity is only for rich people. We're told that generosity and giving is unwise. You, you may have been taught that in, in your home growing up. Let me just say that's not true. We'll get to that later. Um, maybe just a couple more. Um, I think one of the reasons why we lack generosity is because we lack alignment on our finances in our homes. Here's what I mean by that. Maybe the wife wants to give, but the husband doesn't think it's wise, so it doesn't happen, or vice versa happens. Or maybe the husband just wants to go out and spend on, on all the new toys and experiences, and, and the wife wants to give, but there's nothing less to give. Or, uh, you know, again, vice versa. There. I'm not gonna call out spending of women. It's Father's Day, so I'm going after the men here. But there's no alignment. Do you know that at or near top of the list, every single year, divorce rates near the top of the list is always money. Money, sex, communication. Those are the three things. Why divorce is gonna happen. And so I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about you know, giving here. I'm talking about family alignment on finances and how they work. And, and here on Father's Day, specifically to the men in the room who are married, you're in charge of the budget, okay? You must lead in that way. I'm not saying there's like domineering and abusive tendencies. What I am saying is you work together with your wife to get to a place of alignment where your consumption doesn't outpace your earning and giving is always growing and it always comes first because you wanna lead your family in the way of Jesus, not the way of the world. Okay, so men, I want you to hear that. Last reason why maybe there's some obstacles to our giving, is a, a scarcity versus abundance mindset. I talked about this a little bit last week. And a scarcity mindset says, I, I'm always in danger of not having enough. Therefore, I must do everything I can to protect and hoard. While an abundance mindset says, God owns everything. God's in charge of everything. He is a good God. He has made promises to me. I'm gonna stand firm on those promises. He will provide for me. I will not lack now or in all of eternity. Therefore, if God is an abundant God and gives us an abundant life, I'm gonna trust in him and I'm gonna be generous even if it doesn't seem to make mathematical sense. He will provide for you. So all of these obstacles, and, and there's more, is birthed out of this false worship of money, just like the Israelites had a false worship of the golden calf. And we take this poor view of God where we think he's not gonna redeem me, he's not gonna save me, he's not gonna provide for me, he's not gonna protect me, and we lack generosity again because our hearts have not been stung by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are some of the obstacles to giving. Number two, what I wanna show you is that generosity is God's idea. Okay, so God did give the Israelites a promised land. Moses repents. Moses leads the Israelites to repent of their sin. And, and God relents on disaster and says, fine, you, you can have the promised land and I will go with you. Now, friends, the storyline of the scripture is God with us. 
The aim of the gospel is being reconciled to God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. God's vision for your life, hear me, Christian, God's vision for your life is that he would be your God and you would be his people and you would dwell with him forever. The entire aim of God's work in your life is you and God together, us and God together in his presence. This is the aim of the Bible. Think about it. It's on the first pages. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. The beauty of the garden was not all the lush landscape and all the provision in there. The beauty of the garden is that God was with his people. And then Adam and Eve sin, and they bring sin into the cosmos, and it fractures everything, and there's all kinds of curses for our sin, right? Childbearing is painful, and working the ground is hard, and and husbands and wives now butt heads. But the greatest curse of our sin is what? Adam and Eve banished from the garden, banished from the presence of God. There's, there's something called the intertestamental period where at the ending of the prophets of our Old Testament and the beginning of the gospels in our New Testament, there is 400 years of silence where God is distant from his people because of their sin. We have Jesus coming into the picture. The son of God puts on flesh and dwells among us. And what is his name? Emmanuel, God with us. As Jesus is hanging from a cross between two, two uh, criminals, one of them repents and Jesus says, you're forgiven and today you will be with me in paradise. The most beautiful part of those words of Jesus is not the forgiveness of sins, it is the fact that he will be with Jesus forever. As Jesus breathes his last on the cross, the veil in the temple tears from top to bottom, which unveils the Ark of the Covenant, the most poignant place of God's presence. As the apostles, after the ascension of Jesus, are praying for 40 days, Pentecost comes, and what happens? The Spirit comes rushing on God's people like fire and wind and dwells within us. And all of eternity, the promises we're looking forward to, right? Heaven, I don't wanna convince you heaven's cool because there's there's golden streets and, and there's no pain and disease and those kind of things. The reason why heaven is worth it is twofold. Sin won't be there and Jesus will. Our faith will become sight. We will look on God with unveiled faces. His presence will not be fettered. The entire aim of our faith and the gospel is God being with us. And so when the people of God in Exodus 33 repent, God forgives them and says, all right, I'm gonna go with you. And if we have all these obstacles to our generosity and we repent of those things, what we're doing is closing the gap between us and the presence of God. And as God saves his people and as God gives demands to his people, he always begins with generosity, So I'm gonna show you in Exodus 34, we're gonna pop around a little bit, some of the ways in which God says generosity's my idea. The first things out of his mouth after he saves his people, after he reconciles his people, after he unites himself to his people. Jump down in Exodus 34 to verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. Jump down to verse 22. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Okay, 
So there's two things here. There's the festival of the unleavened bread and the feast of weeks. Here's what's going on in those. They were yearly festivals that were celebrated around the month of Abib, so that's summer, spring-ish. And, and what they're doing is they're remembering and marking the deliverance of God and the giving of the law, the thing that set God's people aside as his nation and his people as those feasts and those festivals began, the first thing that the priests would do would, was take an offering to remember the activity and character of God. They remembered and rehearsed their deliverance out of Egypt. And so when we're giving, when we're growing in our generosity, what we're doing is remembering our own deliverance. That Jesus saved us from sin, that Jesus saved us from the grip of Satan, that Jesus saved us from the grave and from, from the grip of darkness. We are remembering that, but it's not just remembering his deliverance, his actions, it's remembering his character, who he is. God is love. God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, forgiving his people. So when God commands his people to give during these two festivals, he is saying, you need to discipline yourself, discipline your mind to remember my activity and character. And when we're growing in generosity, we are disciplining ourselves to say, I'm remembering God, your goodness to me your kindness to me. I'm not taking advantage of it. I'm not presuming upon your grace. I'm trusting in you. Second, you heard in verse uh, 22 about the feast of the ingathering. The ingathering happened in early fall. Now, what else happens in early fall? Any farmers in the room? My father-in-law Derek will know this. It's the harvest, okay? The harvest happens in early fall. So what the people would do is they would go out into the fields and they would set up booths and tents and they would begin to, from sunup to sundown, gather the wheat, harvest the wheat, and then at night they would go sleep in those tents. And again, they took up an offering from the first fruits of that harvest. And, and so what are they doing in the, the feast of the end gathering? They're doing two things. Number one, as they're sleeping in booths and tents, they are reminding themselves that this earth is temporary, that this is not their home, that their ultimate home is with God in eternity and everything else is gonna fade while God will not. And the second thing they're doing as they give the beginning of their harvest to God is they're saying, we are utterly dependent upon you. Yes, we planted the seed. Yes, we worked the soil. Yes, we watered it. But God, you had to give the rain. God, you had to give the sun. God, you had to cause the seed to sprout. We work, but God is the one who gives the growth. And so when we're giving, we're declaring again, this is temporary. My money is temporary. God gave it, he can take it away. But he is eternal and his promises are eternal and his presence is eternal. And we're also declaring that, God, I trust in you with utter dependence. I didn't earn it. You gave me my job. You gave me my income. You gave me the breath in my lungs. You caused my life to flourish and grow. Therefore, I am utterly dependent upon you. The third thing, look at verse 19. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of every cow and sheep. Jump down to verse 26. 
the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You've heard it three times now in those 10 verses, this idea of first fruits. You heard first and best, first of the harvest, first of the cows, first of the goats, first of your every animal, and not just the first, but the best. It's not the, you know, the runt of the litter. You go to the best cow and you give it back to God. This is the most repeated command of God for his people regarding generosity, that we give the first fruits, and most often that's connected to about 10% of everything you have right out of the gates to God. So you don't view God as leftovers, that at the end of the month, if we got a little bit extra, God, I'll tip you for you know, providing for me another month. We say right out of the gates, God, you're gonna get the first fruits, the best that I have. And what you're doing in that generosity is what the Israelites were doing with their first fruits is they are declaring faith and trust that God, you can do more with 90 than I can do with 100. God, you can do more with 95 than I can do with five. I have faith and trust in you. And the final thing I wanna show you, verse 20. The firstborn, there it is again, of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborns, there it is again, of your sons you shall redeem, and here it is, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. God expected everyone to participate. That if you call Christ Lord, he expects you not to show up empty-handed. There is no level of income or security or status you must reach before you start generosity. It is God's idea. All of these things are from God's mouth to his people, and he expects his people to obey. Generosity is God's idea. Now, confession time. I wish I didn't have to preach on generosity, okay? It's awkward at times. But I am bound to preach God's word and God's ideas, not my own. And God, very high on his list for his people, is that we would talk about money. It is a very normal conversation in the scriptures. God says it plainly. You cannot worship both me and money. Choose one or the other. You must be singular. You cannot worship both. But why is it his idea? Why does God want his, his Israelite people and us to grow in our generosity I think there's a bunch of reasons. I think first is because God recognizes that generosity releases our dependence on the physical and the tangible, that he causes our dependence to to grow in, in relation to him, not in relation to what's right in front of us. I think our generosity focuses our attention upon God because it moves us to a place of desperation where we're actually having to cry out to God, God, give me today my daily bread. I talked about this last week. None of us in this room pray that prayer with any real faith because we have our daily bread for the next few months. We're provided for. But if we grow in generosity, we're saying I am intentionally gonna have a little bit less so that I can grow in faith, that I can focus my attention upon you and grow in my faith in you. Generosity increases our, our sensitivity to the Spirit's work in us and around us. As, as we begin to close that gap between us and God, worshiping God alone, not our money, we begin to hear his voice and, and feel his promptings. We're more convicted by sin and we're growing out of that. We're more able to minister to people and preach the gospel. God, everything he does, everything he commands, everything he requires of his people is absolutely good. It is good for you. It is good for all of us. 
It may not seem good, but it is absolutely good for you to grow in your generosity. And what did all of it culminate in for the Israelites? God with his people. That was the end game of it, okay? The, the, the truth is, if you grow in generosity, you're gonna grow in being full of the spirit and aware of God's presence in your life. Now, here's the truth. I think some of us play Christian and play church. I'll just say it that way. It's a game to us. And we come in and we consume and see how much we can get rather than how much we can give. And then here's what happens. We play church and then we get frustrated when we can't outgrow our sin. We get frustrated when we see our kids walk away from Jesus. We get frustrated when we can't seem to grow or hear God. We get frustrated when we're bored with the word of God. Why are we surprised by any of those things? If your kids don't see you modeling a growing faith, there's no way they're gonna walk in that faith when they turn 18. If you're, if, you, if, you, if you're not constantly growing in the word of God and obedience to his word, of course you're gonna be stuck and not growing. And I think generosity is one of the primary idols in Story Church amongst all of us, hand up right there with you that we refuse to step into and then we're like, God, you're distant from me. I don't get it. And God's saying, obey me, obey me. If you're not gonna willingly do it, I'm gonna force your hand. And it's, again, for our good. And the lull of the suburbs is to put our faith and trust and worship in money and in stuff and in belongings. Everyone around us appears to be doing good, but it's all a facade. It's all a facade. Let, let us, as people of faith, pull the mask off and say, it's hard. Life is hard. Life is not perfect and I refuse to worship money, I will worship God alone. Generosity is God's idea, and our generosity leads us into greater degrees of God's presence. So with that, okay, some of the obstacles, some of the, some of the reasons why God wants us to be generous, here's how our generosity can start now. Here's some practical ways. You heard Scott read this a minute ago. I wanna read it again for us. 2 Corinthians 9, verses six through eight. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I wanna draw out uh, eight, okay, I'm doing it, eight principles from that and from Exodus that can help us start in our generosity, okay? I'm gonna try and do this quickly. First, giving is for everyone. Second Corinthians nine says each one must give. Exodus 34 verse 26 says, or 20 says, don't come empty handed. Giving is for everyone. If you are going to believe the lie that you must hit some kind of level as a Christian or some kind of level in your finances to start giving, you are missing the point of God's heart for you. And his heart for you is that you would grow in generosity and trust in him. It is for everyone. One of my favorite families at this church, I can't say that. I don't have any favorites. A family I want to be like at this church has kids that get an allowance, okay? And out of that allowance, they give 10%. Their kids serve. Their kids come to church every week. Their kids are involved in story students. 
and I love to see it because they are showing their kids, you're, you're not a less than Christian and you're not a part of this church. You are absolutely necessary and vital to the mission of this church. So you can be a part of it. You can serve, you can give, you can do everything. And they're building that habit into their children. It's for everyone. And those kids outgive a lot of us. It's wild. Number two, giving is to be prioritized. Second Corinthians 9 says that our giving must be decided in our own heart. You must decide in your own heart, in your own home, that we are going to be a generous people and we're going to grow in our generosity year over year over year. You worship and you follow the thing you prioritize, okay? Priorities in your life, your core values, your core convictions will lead you. Make generosity one of those core principles in your home. Number three, our giving, our generosity is to be planned, 2 Corinthians 9 says, do not do it under compulsion. Compulsion. I, I, I said it last week, I'll say it again. I don't want anyone to feel shame when we do these series and then start giving out of shame because here's what's gonna happen. When the shame wears off, you're gonna stop giving and I don't want that. I want your generosity to be gospel-driven generosity that God gave his only son to us that we might be saved and we say, I wanna, I wanna walk in the way of Christ our King. I wanna grow in that. And so we must, we must plan our giving, not just prioritize it, but plan it. Is it written into the budget? Is it recurring? Have you scanned that QR code? Or is it just like, again, at the end of the month, if we've got a little extra, we'll go give a gift. Is your giving disciplined? Second uh, Corinthians said, your giving is not reluctant. Uh, it's a similar word there to the word disciplined. And the word disciplined in the New Testament is the word by which we get our word gymnasium. Gymnasio is how you say it, I think. I forgot, I did, took Greek like 10 years ago. Um, so here's, here's what happens. If you go to the gym, you're going to get benefits. Am I right? And, I, and I'm not talking like, you know, throwing the treadmill on 1.5 and calling that a workout. That's not a workout. I'm talking like sweating, you know, working out. Here's what happens. If you live a disciplined life, you go to the gym, you lift heavy weights, you eat right, you sleep right, you, you, you get rid of bad habits, what's on the other end of all of that? You're gonna be, you're gonna sleep better. You're gonna have better mental health. Your cholesterol's gonna go down. Your blood pressure's gonna go down. If you're a man, your T levels are gonna go up. Good things are gonna happen, right? If you are committed to discipline yourself to go to the gym. Now, if you discipline yourself to grow in your giving, 2 Corinthians 9 says you will be a cheerful giver. Why? Because you will see good things on the other end of your generosity. Not only will you see your own soul and heart grow in faith and in the presence of God, but you will also see a direct output of your giving to God's mission advancing. We're gonna baptize 10 people next Sunday and every person who gave to the mission at Story Church in the last year played a role in that. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. Paul says in Philippians 4 to the, the church at Philippi, hey, no other church entered into partnership with me except for you. And all the fruit that I've borne on my mission, it's credited to your account. When God is moving ministry forward here and outside of these walls in Rancho Cucamonga, if you're giving to Story Church, you are a part of the gospel advancing and that should give you more cheer in your life than anything else. Number five, our giving is to be regularly growing. Paul said that God's grace is abounding so that we abound in every good work. 
If his grace is abounding, our generosity is abounding. So generosity is not a set and forget. It's a, how has my income changed? How has my life changed? How can I regularly grow my generosity? Number six, giving is done in prayer. Prayer and generosity are probably two of the primary things, the tools that God has given to us to increase our dependence. Because when you're praying, what you're doing is saying, I'm not gonna work right now. I'm not gonna think about taking action right now. I'm gonna pray, and, and the God who is sovereign over all things is gonna work on my behalf. When you're giving, you're doing the same thing. You are saying, I am intentionally gonna have less in my bank account so that I can trust God with more. You are growing in your dependence. And every time we pray, every time that little push pay notification comes through in our home, we pray, God, would you, would you reach more students for the sake of the gospel? God, as, as, as Story Kids is happening, would you reach our, our youngest among us with the gospel? It's not babysitting that's happening down there. It's discipleship that's happening down there. God, as home groups are gathering, as men's barbecues happen, as prayer happens, as worship happens. God, would you do things outside of what we can do? Would you transform lives and hearts via our small gifts and act of faith? Number seven, giving is part of self-denial. Jesus is blunt, and suburban Christian hear this. He says to his followers, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The way of Jesus is the way of crucifixion. It's just that simple. Jesus promises to his people suffering. I'm not saying be sadistic and go seek out suffering in your life. But what I am saying is if you call Christ king, you should expect in your life that you should take up a cross. And if you are financially in the place where you're not growing in generosity and denying yourself, you're never gonna have to walk the road of crucifixion because you're never gonna feel the pain that Jesus felt for us in the gospel. We need to tell ourselves no in order to tell Jesus yes. He has given us a blank check of grace. We must give him a blank check of generosity. Number eight, last one. Giving differentiates us from the world. You, you heard in Exodus multiple times, God, how are the people gonna know that we're yours aside from your presence being with us? And the truth of the matter is, down through church history, Christians have confounded in a watching world because of our generosity, which is why Roman emperors could say, how are our people leaving babies on doorsteps of Christians and these people are taking them in? And they adopted those babies. And orphanages started because of Christians. And hospitals started because of Christians. And universities started because of Christians. And, and women's rights were advanced because of Christians. And slavery was defeated because of Christians. Because of the generosity of Christians, our culture is actively being changed. And it is confounding to a watching world. Listen to me. Generosity is folly to a watching world. But if we claim Christ, it's not folly, it's the wisest thing we can do. So there's some of the principles. And with those in mind, um, here's the way in which uh, Katie and I have tried to model our, our lives after people that we respect, people whose lives we want our lives to look like 10, 20, 40 years from now. The, the most simple and basic principle that we go by is the 80-10-10 rule. I've told you guys this before, and, and I got some feedback on that, like, how'd you do that? It's not hard, you just budget, okay? So hear me, here's how it works. First, 10, the first 10, that's giving. We look at the, we look at the stub, the pay stub, right? And we see what's that number and what's 
10% of that number. We're, we're closer to 12 and a half now, and we're just like right out of the gates. That's the first thing. The next 10, that's savings, whether that be stock market or retirement account or just personal savings. That's 10% right there. And then we make financial decisions out of what's left over, about 77.5% of our budget. It's math, guys. I hate Excel and I don't like math, but it's not that hard. You just find out how much you make and you do the math. You plug in the numbers. So what do we do? We don't, buy, we don't go get a mortgage that takes up 45% of that 77%. We get less house in order to increase in generosity. We don't buy cars we don't need. Katie doesn't want to drive a minivan. I could sell minivans. I love minivans. Right? We would love to have vacation homes and more toys and give our kids more. Don't get me started on that. But we intentionally say no to say yes to generosity. The 80-10-10 rule. Part of that, the second thing we do is every July we do just a little budget review, like a business meeting, okay? And it's good. Again, family alignment on giving. What's your income? If you have two, what's your dual income look like? And how can I break those numbers down? Because guess what? Life is always changing your property taxes are gonna change, therefore your escrow is gonna change, therefore your monthly payment's gonna change. Okay, what else is gonna happen? Your kids are gonna grow and Owen is eating like he's 17 right now and our grocery bill's just like through the roof. But what doesn't change is giving. What changes out of that is other things. Okay, we don't need the Spotify, whatever, subscription. We can listen to commercials once in a while. It's not a big deal. And then we pray. Every single time we pray. So I wanna encourage you in that. Take up some of these principles. Go home and over the, as we begin to step into our new fiscal year, work out your budget. And in line with that, if you grab your bulletins, on the back of your bulletin, you're gonna see just a, a little chart we put together. And we're gonna, we're gonna challenge our church to have the 1% challenge. That seems so low and lame. Let's call it the 2% challenge as of now. I said this last week, I'll say it again. Ranch Cucamonga's median household income is $97,000 a year. The national average for giving among Christians is 2.5% of their annual income. Ours at our church is about 2.7% of that $97,000. So just some basic math. I don't know what everyone makes here, okay? I'm just taking the averages. If we take away two or three of our largest givers to Story Church, our percentage goes from 2.7 down to 1.5% of annual income, okay? So with that, what, what we're saying is, if you go to that chart and you look at 2%, let's round up, the average monthly gift is, is about $200. So what that's telling me is if you're giving 10% of your income to the church, and you're giving $250 a month, the average person at Story Church makes $20,000 annually. Okay? What we wanna do is have you see, I don't even know why we started at $20,000 and finished at 150. Because I know there's so many people that make way more than 150 and almost no one makes only 20 grand. But what I want you to do is find yourself on that chart. What's your monthly giving and how does that compare to your annual income? And then take the 1% challenge or 2% challenge, okay? The aim is 10%. It should be the aim. 
You may not be able to get there, but as you wisely budget over time, you could get there. Now, here's the, the basic numbers. If you're giving $250 a month, you're giving about $60 a week to Story Church. If you up your giving by 1%, your giving goes from 250 to 330, which means your weekly giving goes from $60 to about $80. That's a $20 bill every week. Go look at your account and see what you spend $20 on a week. <laughs> Starbucks, Amazon, shoot, we spend $20 on Amazon in our sleep because it's right at our fingertips. If you go from uh, giving $250 a month and you up it 2%, you'll, you'll go up to about $400 a month. Your weekly giving will go from 60 to 100 a week. That's a $40 increase throughout a week. You can do that. We wanna challenge you, take the 1% and build yourself towards 10%. You're saying, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Listen, if every person at Story Church began to give 1% more, our budget would increase by $49,000 a year. If everyone at Story Church gave 2% more, our budget would increase by $100,000 a year. Imagine with me what somewhere between 50 and $100,000 could do for our church. Like that kid space, we could renovate it next week. Okay? We could throw more fuel on the fire of partnering with ministries in our church or in our city. We can give more to Assure. We can give more to Growing Pains. We can give more to local causes that are happening all around us, but we're having to sit there and say, hey, we just don't have it right now. We, we would love, we're gonna pray for you, we're gonna participate, but we, we just can't give it to you. It's not just that. Think about Eduardo down in Colombia planting churches all over, and he's just calling us constantly. Hey, we got another church planner. We, we need like 200 bucks a month. And we're like, sorry, we can't do that, Right? Imagine what we could do. We could make an offer to Sierra Vista tomorrow and say, let us buy this. Let us renovate this. Let us do with this place what you've always prayed that we could do with this place. That's if we give 1% more, church. I'm not trying to, again, um, twist any arms or shame anyone into this. What I'm trying to do is get you to see how far our hearts are from the heart of God as it pertains to generosity. If we're all making $30,000 a year, then we better be glad we live in California because there's all kinds of hands out for, handouts for us. But that's not the case. That's just not the case. So I want you to earnestly pray about this. I want you to earnestly challenge yourself to do this. I want you to earnestly consider why it matters, not just for this church, but for your own soul. Do you wanna look more like Jesus? Do you wanna be in the, in the, it, it growing in the presence of Jesus? Do you wanna be following the commands of Jesus? Okay, so I'm gonna give you about 30 seconds to just quietly maybe look at this chart, pray, ask God to convict you and begin to make plans for how you can increase in your giving and then we'll partake in the Lord's Supper together.